Well, we've been uh, in a series, Keeping Your Joy, the Heartfelt Theology of an Isolated Prisoner. We've actually been in this for about 10 weeks. It just seems different being here, but it's, it's uh, the same series. I hope you've been following along. I want to talk to you this morning, by the way, the services, I know it's different sitting with a mask on and everything else, so they won't be long. We're going to work toward 55 minutes-ish, you know, that type of thing. And I know that the, until we have children's ministries and everything else, there's a bit of extra effort, and thank you. So we're trying to be mindful of that as well. The joyful cost of building faith in others. The joyful cost of building faith in others. The text is Philippians 2, 17 to 30. I hope you have a Bible somehow in some form or another. Philippians 2, 17 to 30. Paul writes and says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, he's, his ministry, his ministry to these people may cost him his life. He writes from Roman prison. He may be executed. Even if that happens, I am glad and rejoice with you all. 18. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him, that's Timothy, who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all, that's all the other religious workers that Paul knows, they all seek their own interests. Think about that. He says, everybody else that I know, that I work with, here's what they're marked by. They're not bank robbers, they're not rapists, murderers, but here's, here's what most of them are like. These are the Christian workers. Most of them seek their own interests. It's, it's quite a phrase, isn't it? Most of them seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about that. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. Notice if, if I was underlining right now, I will later worker, soldier. So what kind of work is it that manifests itself in this aggressive soldier kind of image? This is not, this is not the soldier image of warring against principalities and powers. This is not an Ephesians 6 kind of soldiering. This is a different kind of battle that we all face. It's a battle that relates to the way Paul described all these other workers, they seek their own interests, okay? All these other workers seek their own interests, not the interests of Christ. But Epaphroditus, is, he's different because he's a soldier. He fights against seeking his own interests. That's what we're going to be studying this morning, the joyful cost of building faith in others. 25, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier. 
and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I couldn't take it if something happened to Epaphroditus. 28. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So, so receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. That's quite a, a text. And there are two elements in this passage that make it a challenge to, to teach from this side and make it a challenge for you to hear from that side of the pulpit. It's hard for both the speaker and it's hard for the listener. For the speaker, it's hard because it drops suddenly from these great doctrinal heights that we've been studying. Suddenly we're left, we're left just fumbling around with Paul's desire to perhaps visit a church, send someone else until he knows his own future, and that's really about it. And it's hard for the reader or the listener because few of us can easily relate to the emphasis that, that Paul's placing on commitment to mission and sacrifice. He talks about Timothy. He talks about Epaphroditus. They almost laid down their lives carrying the gospel to people. It's, it's a little hard for you perhaps to relate to because, well, these guys were full-time missionary types who paid this price for their calling, coming close to losing their lives. So how do, how do we, how do we as Canadian citizens, blessed with freedom, prosperity, independence, how, how, how are we supposed to relate our lives? Here we are, first time we've been in church for a long time, and you're talking to us about Timothy and Epaphroditus. What does that have to do with us? Our surrounding culture, let's face it, it really can't understand any commitment that isn't directly related to the fulfillment of self. Self-security, self-esteem, self-promotion, self-fulfillment, the rights of self. Watch the news. I mean, that's what our world is like. Paul's praise for Timothy and Epaphroditus laying down their lives for the gospel, it, it reads like Latin in our ears a little bit. The, the summons of every dominant cultural voice that you and I hear is a clarion call to be true to self, not true to Christ. So there's just, there's just nothing in the cultural message to our ears to reinforce the kind of character that, that Paul says we're all supposed to imitate. We're going to come back to that in a minute. There's another thing that makes this a challenging passage. Every once in a while you, you encounter a text like this in serious Bible study. And, and the flow of the passage. It's just involved enough that it might be good just to kind of lay out the chronology of some of the basic events in this text. So if you were to put this passage into motion chronologically from start to end, it would go something like this. 
Epaphroditus was sent by the church at Philippi with a gift to visit Paul in prison. All right? En route to Paul, Epaphroditus became very ill, almost died. Now, how the church back in Philippi knew about Epaphroditus' illness, it's unclear. Except probably Epaphroditus didn't travel alone. That rarely happened. And so somebody accompanying him, we don't know who, probably went back to Philippi with the news about Epaphroditus' illness while Epaphroditus stumbled on to Paul. That was the cause of the Philippians' worry about Epaphroditus. You can read about it in 26, 226. They're worried about him. So, because Epaphroditus was distressed, he was distressed at the church's worry over him, he wanted to go back and comfort the church. That's in 26, 27, 28. Epaphroditus will return to Philippi just as soon as possible, 25. Now, the significant detail in Epaphroditus' return is he will take This is important. He will take a letter from Paul back to the people at Philippi that you and I know as Philippians. Paphroditus will take that back to Philippi when he goes. Of course, Paul can't deliver that letter right now because he's in prison. He doesn't want to send Timothy right now because he needs Timothy. That's 23 and 24. But there's another reason Paul wants to send Timothy a little bit later. Think about it. Epaphroditus takes Paul's letter. There's a lot of instruction, encouragement. Epaphroditus takes Paul's letter back to the church at Philippi, Philippians. Paul wants to send Timothy later on because his future is uncertain, 23, 24, but also because Timothy will be able to go back to Philippi and see if the church is applying what Paul wrote in the letter. Epaphroditus would take the letter first. It would be read to the church. Later, Timothy, another worker with Paul, he'll go back and see how is the church doing with all of the instructions that Paul gave them? Are they carrying out these instructions? Are their lives being transformed? Paul wants to make sure they're putting into practice because he had given them quite a bit to do. So these instructions are what we've been studying online in the past few weeks. How they're to to live their life in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, 127. They've been chided a little bit for seeking their own interests above others, chapter 2, verse 4. That's in that letter. He cautioned them about the importance of striving for a humble mind of Christ so they wouldn't be grumbling amongst each other. That's in 14 and 15 of chapter 2. Twice he told them they were to make sure he put his instruction into practice even though he wasn't physically with them yet. 127, 212. Okay, all of that. All of that. Will they listen to Paul? Everything hinges on that. Will Will they take his letter to heart? Heed the call of the Holy Spirit in Paul's words. He wants to know. And by first sending Epaphroditus with the letter, and then later sending Timothy, Paul can find out firsthand 
how these Christians are responding to what he wrote. Among all these details, Paul attaches like an attachment in an email. There's this one lesson that, that he's very concerned about. He's still thinking about this. The mind of Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which was yours in Christ Jesus. That's 2.5. What I want to do now is I've got a bit of an introduction, longer introduction, and just one point. So don't panic when you haven't heard point number one yet, because there's just going to be one, and it'll be just a little bit later on. So he's, the key of it all, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And, and Paul just can't seem to let that idea go. It just seems so important. We've seen it. The mind of Christ is, is the humility that, chapter 2, verse 3, counts others more significant than ourselves. And the idea here is there's no genuine ministry for Jesus without that mindset in our lives. Can't happen. It's never easy. It's never convenient. But if we're going to minister in the name of Jesus, to one another. You, you, you can't insist on your own way and bring Jesus to people. You can't insist on your own rights and bring Jesus to people. You can't be dominantly concerned with your own concerns and bring Jesus to people. And so Paul wants to say, I can go here because I'm socially, she's in my social bubble. What Paul wants to say to these people is this. And it applies to us. Had Jesus not, this is the Philippians 2 stuff, had he not denied all of his rights, all that was rightfully his, all of his own interests, had he not denied all of his rights, you and I would still be eternally damned. See, that's the point. We, we are here, we are here, born again, with eternal life, followers of Jesus Christ. Our lives change for only one reason. Jesus didn't keep what was rightly his. Now, there's other people that need to know about Jesus and be reached with the love of Jesus. And Paul says, that can't happen unless you have the same mind Jesus had in reaching you. So in other words, if you're concerned with your own rights your concept of justice, your entitlements, your concerns, if that's what's dominating your thinking, you can, you can never be like Jesus. The reason we're redeemed is he denied everything that was rightly his. Now, if we're going to be like Jesus and have the touch of Jesus, have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So that's just the theme that he's going to, the reason I mention it is, that's what he's going to be continuing dealing with. All through our text, we see the cost of being used by God, and we see that cost being paid with joy. It starts with Paul, 2.17, even if I'm ready to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice. So you see this mind of Christ in Paul. Then you see it in Timothy. That's in 20 and 21. 
He says, I have no one else like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Christ. So we see it in Paul, poured out like a drink offering. We see it, we see it in Timothy. He doesn't pursue his own interests. That's what the others do. He, he puts their interests first. And we see it in Epaphroditus, 29 and 30. Receive him in the Lord with all joy. Honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So you can tell Paul means for us to notice this trait of dedication. The mind of Christ he talks about in 2.5. Paul himself demonstrates it pouring out his life. Timothy demonstrates it putting their concerns above his own. Epaphroditus demonstrates the same trait, almost losing his life to reach out in ministry to these people. And so, and so we know that Paul means for us to notice this trait of self-denial in the dedication of his servants. It's the pattern. It's the pattern throughout the text. I think the point I meant to see is Jesus could never have fulfilled his mission to reach me without totally dying long before the cross, totally dying to all that was rightly his. A partial commitment on the part of Jesus to redeem me would have been useless, right? A partial commitment on the part of Jesus to redeem me would have been totally useless. And, and, and a partial commitment on my part to reach and bless others, to build Christ into their lives, to take the gospel to the lost, it's totally useless as well. It'll only be accomplished by people who put the interests of others above their own interests. By the way, that's what that famous John 15 passage is all about. For the life of Jesus... To grow, the life of Don Horban must die. What else, what else does Jesus mean when he says, I have to prune this thing, this bush. I have to keep pruning it because I, there's a certain fruit that I want. But that fruit doesn't come unless other stuff gets cut away. He's talking about my life. He's talking about your life. The kind, of, the kind of growth of the life of Christ doesn't happen just because you ask for it. It comes with the pruning of self-interest, self-rights. I have three thoughts, and we're just going to do one this morning and, and two next, okay? So here's point number one, but like I said, don't worry. Kingdom influence can only be found in denying self. I pondered the wording of that point. I mean, perhaps, perhaps I could have said that we all need to pray that Christ will change my interests into his. And, and I'm not saying that's wrong, but I am saying that doesn't quite capture it because Jesus doesn't call me just to pray about my naturally self-centered life. He, he tells me to deny it, like my will seems to be involved in this process. I'm not passive. I think, I think this is what Jesus was talking about in those famous words in Matthew 10, 39. 
you know these words. Whoever finds his life, red, is that going to bother you? Because we're normally yellow. How many can handle that if it's red? All right. Whoever finds his life, so there's a certain kind of finding of my own life that doesn't work. Whoever finds his life will lose it. So this finding has to be something that doesn't work. This is, this is me searching for the meaning of my own life on my own terms. This is me pursuing my ambitions, my interests, my concerns, my rights. Elevating that because I think somehow that's, that's what life is all about. And Jesus says, if you do that, well, you lose it. You lose it. And then he says, whoever loses his life. And he defines now what he means. For my sake. We'll find it. So, so there's, 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 a way of, there's a way of looking at my life that at first glance doesn't seem to make sense. Because it doesn't fit in with everything the culture's telling me about securing my life, satisfying my life, putting joy into my life, putting meaning into my life. There are a million voices telling me how to do that. And if I do, Jesus says, you'll lose it. It won't work. Think about that. Most of the advice you hear about fulfilling your life is disastrous. And he says, but if you'll just, if you'll lose all that, if you do it for, for my sake, here's what happens. You, you don't lose anything. You find what you've truly been designed for, what you've been created for. You find a way of life that truly works, even though it's counterintuitive and countercultural. But it'll work. It'll work. So I want you to notice in that little verse, it's so well known that sometimes we don't see it. There's this, there's this definite sequence. First, there's losing of self. Then there's the finding of Christ. You can't find Christ any other way. Now that seems to be the way Paul describes his own life and his own ministry in in verses 17 and 18 of our text. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Pour it out like a drink offering. If I, I won't. If I took this, take the top off and just, and just pour it out. It's easy to pour it out, but try picking it up. It's hard to, it's hard to pick it up again. Paul is talking about something, something irrevocable. A life poured out like a drink offering. A, a, an irreversible, irrevocable commitment to putting Christ first. And so... With these examples, the mind of Christ, Jesus, Paul, Timothy, Epaphroditus, with all of these examples, there's this this unavoidable paradox in knowing Christ deeply. And it's, it's only in participating in that same mind, the denial of self, 
It's, it's only in that way that we discover true joy. I want to, before we're done, I want to show you where Jesus repeats himself again with the same emphasis. It's in a longer text that we're going to look at, a parable that he told. It's in Luke 14, verses 15 to 20. Luke 14, 15. When one of those who reclined at table with him, so they're talking, they heard these things, he said to him, to Jesus, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. Okay, so here's, here's this person. Here's Jesus talking about the kingdom. He's very impressed with what Jesus says. And says, I, I can't wait. Blessed is the person to break bread with you in the kingdom of God. That great celebrative moment. How wonderful it's going to be. Now, is that where kingdom life begins? Just with the celebration of it. 16. But he, Jesus, said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servants to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all, remember Paul talked about about the uniqueness of Timothy, all the other workers, he said, they seek their own interest. Remember in the opening text? Now look at here. But they all alike, so there's the same pattern that, that Jesus is painting in all of these people. Common problem, that's what he's saying. They all began to make excuses. So when I read this, here I am, Don Horbin, 2020, and you. When we read this, the way it's worded, they all alike, everyone in the same way, exactly they marshaled the very same kind of thinking. The reason Jesus words it like that is he's saying, Don, I want you to see yourself in this. Right? This is, this is what most people do. They all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field. Anything wrong with buying a field? No. I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen. And I must go to examine them. Please have me excused. So the first... The first two, it has to do with things they've purchased. It has to do with material expenditures. I think we're meant to notice that. Another said, I've married a wife. Therefore, I, I cannot come. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me, and these have to be some of the strangest words in the New Testament, if anyone comes to me and, do, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children. He cannot mean that, can he? And brothers and sisters, 
This is really the root of it, though. Even his own life. That doesn't fit very well. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross, what is that? And come after me, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me, he, he can't. He, he cannot possibly be my disciple. That seems to be the heart of it. I mean, the whole passage is strong, but that just seems to be like there, there's your punchline at the end of it. The key phrase, the cross. Everyone has to bear this cross if they're going to follow Jesus. I think the cross is exactly the same for everybody. I mean, the excuses were slightly different. But the cross is the same for everyone. Carrying the cross means living for Christ's agenda rather than my own. That is just made so clear, isn't it, in that Luke 14, 18 to 20, where they all began to make, they all began to make excuses. Bought a field. Bought oxen. Married a wife. Can't come. And, and here's the striking thing. The striking part of this parable is the way, is the way we, we normally think of our work, our wealth, and our families. We think of those things as, as the way we Christians normally do serve Jesus. I want to be a Christian dad. I want to be a godly husband. I want to be faithful and honest in my work. So, so when, we, when we discuss those things in church circles, we do seminars on, on how to do your work and how to have a good marriage and how to be a good parent. So, so what, what can Jesus be thinking? Jesus paints all these same things, the same things we were just talking about. He says, it, you may well serve me in those things, but let me point out something else. They are all potential threats. They are all potential threats. So, so we are being forced to examine the simple, blunt fact that Jesus, at least in this parable, he views these things differently than the way we normally view them. I think that's fair. I've been thinking long and hard about this, and, and I've come to the conclusion that certainly, while I certainly can and must serve Jesus in my work, with my wealth, and as I care for my family, Jesus still sees that there's this danger that I so prioritize my life all around these good things that they come to be gradually and unawares to me, not avenues for serving him, but replacements for being devoted to him. And then there's the problem. Let me, let, me, let me try and say it this way. When Jesus talks about in, in putting the relationship with him first, remember when, when Jesus said, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you, Matthew 6, 33. Everybody knows it. So here's the principle. 
And it relates to this text. When you put second things first, when you put second things first, two things happen. You lose, you lose that what you've put in first place because it shouldn't be there. You lose that and you lose what you put in second place but should have been in first place. Did I make that clear? When, when you put second things in first place, you lose what you put in first place and you lose what you should have put in first place because it won't work in second place. But if you put the right thing in first place, your devotion to Jesus, you keep what you have in first place, plus you bring blessing on all the things that were supposed to be in second, third, and fourth place. All these other things will be added unto you. And now you start to see that parable where Jesus has these strong words about family and about work and about material purchases. And in this parable, what happened is these things were in first place. And then it's like, if you, it, you think you're going to find your life that way, you're going to lose it. Very tellingly, Jesus informing this parable he says these things these things can easily become excuses for not serving jesus as we should and in doing that we jeopardize these other things as well my my family isn't safe in first place and jesus knows it Jesus frames the parable in this really striking way because he knows, he knows how commonly, because these are good things, they become the excuses of choice for Christian people. He knows how commonly we use these very precious and very important commitments as excuses for not serving him at the cost of any of those things. I think those words are meant to be a bit haunting. I think they're meant to be a bit haunting. But here's what I want to say in closing. There's one final important wrap-up point. To miss this point, what I'm going to say in the next 30 seconds, is to miss everything. True. The life of devotion to Jesus is costly. You have to have the mind of Christ that puts your own interests and your own rights second. It is costly. But don't think for a minute, as you hear these words from this text, don't think for a minute that Jesus is trying to somehow empty our lives. He's not out to diminish. He's not out to reduce life in any way. Paul got this mindset, pouring out his life as a sacrifice. He got that mindset about Jesus from looking at the way he laid down his lives for us. And when we have the mind of Christ, he reorients. He reorients our lives around kingdom commitments, and he says, that's the way you find life. I'm not out to make it smaller. I'm out to make it bigger. But it's counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive. So let's just make sure in our lives... Let's make sure in our lives, this mind of Christ. Let's make sure that it's not just a flowery phrase 
like on a Hallmark card. But let's make sure, let's make sure in, in a dozen little things every day, we have the mind of Christ that places others above self, kingdom above self. And let's pray that God helps us to do it. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word that tells us the things tells us the things of the kingdom in in ways that are sharp enough to be rememberable and at the same time life-giving enough so that if we will but trust you if we will but have the mind of Christ that that we will see that it is ultimately the way to find life. There is not another voice other than your word. There is not one other voice that will speak this truth into our hearts. It is, it is not the message of any voice in our culture. And so give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.